Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. Welcome. In this episode, I talked to James Parker of Ground Shatter about their turn-based tactical melee card-based game, Fights in Tight Spaces. There's a lot to Fights in Tight Spaces. I kept on calling it Tights in Fight Spaces as well in the show. It's really embarrassing. Apologies for that. Sorry, James. It's called Fights in Tight Spaces. And it is a turn-based tactical melee game based on card play. You play cards and whatever cards are dealt based on the deck you've built because it's a deck building game you then commit actions based on that. And I'm a big fan of tabletop games. Most people know that about me. So to have a game like this on the Sausage Factory was an absolute delight as was James. He was a great guest. All my guests are great. but James was just, you know, Great. And they've made a well-made game. It's well-crafted. Of course it is. Because every game in this show is is well-crafted. I always say that. But what I really love about this game is how transparent it is in regards to your successes and failures. And that way you can really learn from both very easily and very quickly. Which, yes, it is tough. And the abstract way in which deals with combat is a little bit difficult to get your head around. But once you do, once you figure it out and see the patterns and see the opportunities and the risks, so well presented and clearly presented to the player, it is quite something. Enough of me blathering on. Let's listen to me from the past talking to James about fights in tight spaces. Take it away, Chris. James, 
Hello. Who are you? And what do you do? I am uh, James Parker, and I'm a design director at Ground Shatter. Indeed, you are. That's a great name for a developer. We'll talk about that later as to where that comes from. It's a lovely name. But um, how did you make your start making flashy, lighty video games? Um, I was working as a database programmer in Bristol, where I'm from. Um, and at the same time in my evenings, I was writing plays and sitcoms and other creative works. And uh, I was dreadfully bored in my job. And a friend of mine had just started working for a games company at university. And I was like, well, that's that's a fun job, right? So I, um, I started making mods for Doom and later for Quake and Quake 2. Um, so when, uh, when this friend started working in games, I badgered him until, uh, he put my CV in front of the director sales company and they were like, Oh, we quite like your combination of, of technical skills doing the programming and your creative skills doing the writing and doing the mods. So I got a job as a, as a junior game designer and then sort of it carried on from there. And that was about 22 years ago. Wow. What what a story! Um, you're right. Programming is a much, and to have those uh, those, those dual abilities of actually creative writing and the, respecting the art of creation and programming, um, yeah, that's that's no, no wonder you were snapped up eventually. <laughs> um, but uh, and also, I've been messing around with some uh, PlayStation games over the weekend, and the Quake Two port on the PlayStation, the original one, was amazing. I don't know how they did it. But. Yeah, I mean, I, there's there's a lot of um, sort of olden days game development things that come all the way through from from kind of the early days where proper, like, hardcore games programmers can do incredible things that I couldn't even dream of doing. Like, my my technical skills are, are mostly relating to kind of making gameplay happen and understand that. But as soon as someone's dealing with you know, the complexities of getting things running quickly on hardware that shouldn't let it run that quickly, then suddenly you get into the kind of galaxy brain game programmer stuff, which has always impressed me a huge amount. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's quite, it's quite an art. It's quite an art. Um, okay. So obviously you've made your way through like 22 years of, of development then. Can you give us a bit of highlights of all that that period and what you what you worked on? Yeah, it's been a it's been a, a sort of strange old journey, really. Uh, like uh, the the companies I, I I worked for a company called Particle Systems up in Sheffield. That was my first games industry job. And when I joined, it was about eighteen people working on kind of uh, early PlayStation Two titles. Um, and that company grew very quickly during that time because the PlayStation 2 was so much more powerful than the generation of consoles that came before it and team sizes grew and grew. And then I went to work for Blitz after that and that that was a bigger company still working on a whole bunch of projects at the same time doing lots of licensed games. So I worked on uh, Reservoir Dogs and a SpongeBob game and a couple of American Idol games, uh, writing dialogue for Simon Cowell and things like that, which was a lot of fun. and then uh, I went freelance doing the writing thing for a bit. And then as 
as the possibility to start doing smaller games arose again, sort of in, I don't know, the early 2000s when uh, you could start self-publishing and start doing things like that. Then I got back into game design and working for for tiny companies and then eventually started Grand Chatter um, sort of seven years ago and made a game kind of on my own with a couple of freelancers and I've gradually built up the company to sort of 10 people now, nine, 10 people. And it's, uh, yeah, it feels a bit like things have come full circle. And I'm now looking at, at this, the sort of scale of company that I joined when I started my career. Yeah, a lot of things happened in the last sort of, because I think the big turning point for a lot of the game industry was 2007, I think, because <clears> that's when the Xbox went, you know, we can, you can make games for this console. You don't, you don't need to be a, double a or triple a studio whatever that meant um you can you know small, you know one person developers can make games for the, our console knock yourself out and it just opened everything up didn't it and uh yeah and, and that that and the rise of digital distribution yeah. suddenly meant that you didn't have to have this huge infrastructure of publishers and distributors and shops selling your games it was possible to make a thing and people would download it and that would be direct to consumer basically yeah and again full circle because that's how it started way back in the early 80s when there was no publisher or any like software houses they were called back in the day they had people just in their bedrooms recording tapes somehow and then sending them off for mail order and, yeah. Uh, yeah a very embryonic version of steam <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh so yeah interesting stuff but um here we are talking about uh, fights in tight spaces, which we'll delve into the second half of the show. Before we do that, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about what gets you going. So as a creator, you can actually ask this personally or as, you know, as, as the studio yourself. Um, what are your biggest influences? Um, I would say for me, it's a combination of things it's sort of seaside arcades and games that you could pump a bunch of money into and have a really kind of concise cool exciting experience in a short amount of time um and action movies so nonsensical things blowing up people diving through windows shooting things people getting kicked out of moving vehicles you know like all grades of quality action movies from, you know, straight to video nonsense to uh, your Fast and Furious nines, like, and everything in between. Just those, are like, all of our output is what would, what would be the Hollywood idea of what this game is and kind of putting that into practice. Yeah. I mean, I think Fighting Tight Spaces reminds me a little bit of the Jason Bourne films because that's how he fought or fights, you know, it's just this blur of arms and legs and everyone's laying around and, you know, knocked out around him, but he's still standing, even though he's just killed, taken out 10 people. (laughs) It just feels like that. Yeah. There's, there's like a, a trope, I suppose, in, um, action movies, which is having fights in increasingly tight spaces. The, 
having a fight in the back of a moving car in a helicopter or in a lift or a corridor or all of these things that like you can you can invoke a certain style by reminding people that um if you move your body in the right way you can take out a bunch of bad guys who are coming at you and you can use the environment to your favor or you can use objects around you in that way it's uh, uh it's really interesting to see how kind of cinema handles that and how we could recreate that but in a in a very different i guess genre of game yeah yeah it's it certainly is because um normally it will be real time this kind of thing and it historically has been but uh you said does it have to be no no it doesn't so <laughs> uh, yes. and as as demonstrated uh by, by your good selves so uh yeah, um, again, we'll, we'll, I mentioned to talk about more, but we still need to ask a couple more increasingly tricky questions. But no, you've you done well with the, number, the dreaded number three nebulous question of what your influences are. And yeah, it's action films and those that, those scenes, certainly the lift scene from one of the Avenger films, I can't remember which one, uh, where Captain America is in a lift and uh, realises he's been rumbled by uh, a certain group of... Uh, various individuals and he proceeds to beat the crap out of them <laughs> yes very much so in in a tiny lift it's a great scene great scene why you know so why why, why not make a game about that only slow it right down <laughs> <laughs> so next question then and again this can be an individual thing or something you can maybe think the, the, the your studio uh, relates to but um what Developer, do you most admire in the industry, and why? Could be a person or a company. Oh, that's uh, that's a really tricky question. I um, I really like what Insomniac do, um, and that's partly because I adore the Spider-Man games, and and kind of have done throughout the existence of Spider-Man games. Um, I think they, what they get right is making you feel like that character in every facet of the game. So you never feel like the cutscenes are pulling you out of the game. They feel like you're they're pulling you into the game, um, but you uh, you never feel like you are doing a bad job of being Spider Man, which is quite a hard thing to accomplish. And everything about the movement and the controls and the camera and the city and all of the the layers of things just at every moment you believe wholeheartedly that you were in spider-man's world and that's such a impressive feat and there are obviously there are a huge company and loads of people work there but you can like every tiny little thing the attention to detail and the it feels like they're goal is being to make the best possible iteration of that game so the swinging is perfect and the combat is perfect and the details on the streets are perfect and the map works really well and like it's just such a such an inspiring collection of things to put together and get so right that um i'm always kind of in awe of that yeah uh, they are absolute cross people. Uh, you can tell they really care about the content or the theme or the subject matter. 
and they let that inform the play, which is something I find intriguing with developers. Where does that, you know, the people may ask the question, you know, where does the story start? Where does the game begin? Or where's the, it's like, in many cases, not all cases, it doesn't really, it's not demarked like that. One evolves from the other sometimes, uh, one informs the other. It's far too difficult. You can't, there's no hard line. Now, you could argue that there are some, you know, examples that there is a hard line or it's not applicable. I mean, does threes have a backstory? Maybe it does. But, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I do, you're right. I think in some that do you understand that, uh, theme is informing the game. Do you agree? Yeah, and I, I, I that's that's sort of something that I, I know we're going to talk about the game as a whole later. But it, like, kind of mm. one of the things about fights and tight spaces that was interesting from a design perspective was that once we'd established what the game was about, it helped inform how it played, and vice versa. The two things have a a kind of necessarily symbiotic relationship and there were there were things that we couldn't do which would have made the design easier but wouldn't have fitted in with the world so um things that are kind of compromises in one area are are challenges in another and are benefits in other so you you have this whole spectrum of how does how does what we're working on now help either inform the gameplay or inform the theme or both and hopefully it's the latter hmm Hmm. okay okay yeah it's um it's, like i said i was saying it's not a hard and fast rule it's it, it, it's you have to treat it as a whole you can't ring fence things off from one to the other they are symbiotic as you say so yeah no and, and had we had we started the game in a different way and said rather than being kind of action movie based it was sci-fi based we would have had a whole different set of things to deal with and challenges to overcome and the game would have ended up being even even with the same set of base mechanics it would have ended up feeling very different from a whole range of reasons yeah yeah final question then of the first half see you made it well done <laughs> And it's this, and it's something I kind of like to ask question, ask this one because it shows that not only do you like making games, but you also like to play them. You're not living in a bubble, in a splendid isolation, or, although that phrase was said in irony, it wasn't a positive thing to be. So what are you playing right now, James? What I'm playing right now is... Um, can I do two... Do as many as you like. Do as many as you like. Um, one game that has been a constant for me over the last couple of years is uh, Golf on Mars, the mobile game, which is a endless side-on golf game, physics-based golf game. Um, and it has no extrinsic rewards. It's solely about you getting the ball from the tee to the next hole. And there's no ceremony. There's no sort of big surprises. It's just a a pure piece of game design where the controls are excellent and the tiny bits of feedback it gives are excellent. Um, and you can 
play it in as short or as long a session as you want. And I've played, I don't know, 8,000 holes of it because it never stops. You've never got a reason to stop except if your life needs to move on. Um, so I've been playing that inevitably. Um, I've been playing Hitman 2, the most recent Hitman 2 on PlayStation, okay. uh, which is a, like the Hitman series I have a weird relationship with because I, I love it and I'm terrible at it. And uh, I often don't have the time to play it how I think they want me to play it. But it's such a good game, such a well-designed game, that it lets me play how I play it, which is really badly. Um, yet I still am empowered some of the time and feel like a cool assassin some of the time. Um, and that's really sort of testament to, again, how how much they understand their, the world that they've created to allow the sort of chaos and nonsense that, inevitably happens as i blunder my way through the game just as much as it allows someone who is amazing at that game to be a completely cool stealth assassin yeah i think getting away with it is another subtitle to getting away just by the sticks by the skin of your teeth and incompetence you somehow still manage to pull the job off without raising too much of an alarm maybe i don't know yeah, oftentimes I raise a lot of alarms and just yeah. leg it. Yeah. But, I mean, that's fine. It just, the same, I get the same feeling playing Hitman games as I played the Thief games, at least the first two. Um, you know, that feeling of, I feel I can get away with this. If I just stuff that light out and move around there and then knock him out, and then, then I've got the thing. And it's the same kind of atmosphere and i was really happy when hitman games came out like yeah it's the same kind of thing you know just just, just might if you pull it off it's really heavily reliant on on awareness of your surroundings though isn't it it's hugely when I mean, the slight sort of thing in the corner like oh they can see me damn it don't do the thing don't just just that casual yeah and they, they both have that 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 openness that mm that giving you the tools that you need to complete the thing, but in some different ways to, to play the game in different ways. And I think that's, that's what, what those two games have kind of have done really well. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's it for the first half. Unless you've got anything else you want to chat about, like games you're planning to play, that's a that's a common one because a lot of developers have that time, Chris. But anything well, yeah, to- I mean that's that's absolutely the case for me. Hence why I'm playing Hitman Two, which probably came out a year ago. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to playing. Uh, I think Far Cry Six over Christmas. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, and and just delving a bit back into my backlog, I bought um, Bonfire Peaks. Oh, that's which, a good one. That's which is great. which is a lovely sort of Sokobani type puzzle game. Yeah, um, and it's 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 one of those ones where it makes me feel dumb, but in a nice way. <laughs> that like I will discover the solution to a thing having hammered away at it for an hour and be like, "What? Well, I could have found that in the first three seconds. Was I not such an idiot?" But yeah, it's always just challenging you to go to try stuff out and 
go to the next level and discover more interactions between a really limited kind of set of tools and it's beautifully presented and it sounds amazing yeah uh, i just love the, the the lighting in that game i know it's because mm. you're, you're setting light to fight but it's just so well done i played it for the first time at uh egx this year doing the in the uh, left field collection area always my favorite area of egx and uh yeah i wasn't disappointed great game great game good shout right okay let's move on to the second half of the show where we delve deep into fights in tight spaces James, before we do this, I need to for you to have a go, and I wish you the very best of luck in this. To tell us what is fights in tight spaces. Oh, fights in tight spaces is a turn-based tactical deck builder where you fight a load of guys in a tight space, and you beat them up, and you move around by playing cards. And yeah, it replicates action movie fight scenes, but in a turn-based fashion. And at the end of the fight, you can press the replay button and things 
play out in it as a little choreographed fight scene that you have created yourself. Yeah, it's a it's a bit like super hot in turn based, <laughs> you know, because uh, super hot is like similar to in that you're in an action scene and you're dodging bullets and taking guns out of people's hands and then clobbering them over the head with them. It just feels like that only with a, a, is it a what's the grid size? I mean, it changes, doesn't it? Or is it 12 by 12, something like that? No, it's that it never goes bigger than six by six. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah. it is, it is very tight. Like, so one of the, one of the big influences is into the breach. So right. when we started working on it, we started with eight by eight grids, which for into the breach, when you've got three characters, three units and, and a load of buildings on the board and a load of enemies, that kind of works. But for us, we've got a single character and actually eight by eight felt vast. So we pulled it in and immediately it was a, a, a much uh, tighter experience in both regards. Yeah. You're not making the banner saga. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. Not there's anything wrong with the banner saga games. Just saying, I quite like them. But uh, in fact, I've been on the show. But uh, yeah, no, it's a different beast, different thing. So my experience with games like this is both uh, digital and analog. Um, so we were talking a little bit um, off air about um, tabletop RPGs and also board games like um, Yomi, which is basically, or indeed the Exceed system, which is Street Fighter only as a card game, turn-based card-based kind. It even has the like massive combo actions and stuff like that, but in a like a like a one-on-one card game, which you're just playing against each other, depending on what whether you're doing a throw or a block or a, 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 cut, a, a, a punch or a kick, you know, it's all card-based. And so these this this concept of modeling combat like this is not unusual, believe it or not. It's actually been around for a little while now. But I was so excited to see this make this transition. Like I mean, you could argue that it was done on the Metal Gear Solid games on a play PSP, which they had. There was a couple of games they they released on a PSP, which were all card based. Even though it was Metal Gear Solid, it was still a card based experience. Um, but with the Titan in fight, sorry, fights in tight spaces, um, you have this positioning which is unique to it's so critical i was just going to read the question now that i wrote earlier today was so fighting tight spaces is unique game play aspect and gameplay aspect in the relative position of the player versus the enemy or ally or object and indeed exit very important exit from the level uh or like a like a border area that you can push people out of plays an absolute integral part of the experience. If you know your relative position to everything else, that informs what you're going to do next at all times. Was this concept the core from the very beginning when you started making um, Fights in Tight Spaces? Uh, it wasn't quite, no. Um, so the the very first kind of when it first came into my brain 
it was going to be more like a series of quick time events essentially so you were you were locked in a position so it was in it was in things like backs of cars it was places where you couldn't move at all and that your actions would be context sensitive based on the previous actions and the actions of the enemies around you right um but that was that was too limiting that 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 essentially made it you had to do a lot of things by rote and it was never like this was conceptually it, it felt like it was never going to work and animation overhead was going to be huge and all some practical things and some conceptual things so as i expanded it out um it didn't it didn't always even have a card element there was there was different potential options for that but as soon as we as soon as I thought about making it card based then suddenly that that unlocked a whole load of possibilities because that that conceptually is sort of what uh an action movie fighter is doing they are they're looking at the situation in front of them and the possible options they have and the kind of it that scene in uh Sherlock Holmes the Rob Downey Jr one where he works through the fight in his head in advance that's a kind of distillation of the idea that i wanted to get across and then from a player perspective having a random hand of cards is the thing that forces you to improvise essentially and then the the movement and the spacing issue comes partly thematically because that's such a big thing in fighting and martial arts is what is your reach and what is your distance and what's your engagement range you've got a whole range of moves that work from close up and a whole load of others that work from further away um and then when you introduce multiple assailants then you have this issue of who are you going to hit first who are you going to attack in which direction where are you going to stand relative to all of them so those things could have sort of coalesced into the central idea which was that you are playing a card game but you're also having to move around and then like we spent a lot of time balancing that because it's it's sort of the one of the more unique things that we do and we don't have separate pools of attack and movement cards everything is the same so when you're building your deck you need to choose whether you're a a nimble fighter who can get out of the way and avoid damage that way or whether you're going to stand and take it in which case you need blocks and counters and dodges or you need to be doing enough damage enough quickly that no one ever hits you anyway so you gain these these different archetypes from the fact that you're choosing how to deal with the movement situation both at a meta level and individual uh, as you're playing individual cards yeah, it's incredibly powerful being able to flank or move it away, and just the the mere act of actually being able to move. Because a lot of uh, tactical card games or got tactical games with cards don't have the ability to move; just got to stay there and take it, <laughs> or you know, do defensive actions, as you say. Whereas there's that added level, very simple added level in fights in tight spaces, just does wonders for the experience. And uh, I think it should be applauded. It's, it's, it's not something that's often seen. Such a simple addition. 
but uh, it's interesting to see here how it evolved. So, my next question is about resources. Um, in tabletop RPGs, there's something known as action economy, mm-hmm. um, and it's a very well-known phenomena. Some games are better at it than others. Um, but with, um, with fights in tight spaces, you have momentum. Something that's a bit of a nebulous concept when it comes to combat, but you've actually managed to model it in fights in tight spaces as a resource. Does it make sense that when you're, you know, you're you're being successful, you're making connections, you're causing damage, that this will build up a sense of momentum on the part of the of the character doing those actions? And it makes you know that's that's the thing. It exists in in a lot of role playing games as well. You actually get bonus sort of bonuses for actually succeeding like okay you did quite well there here's some momentum that you can actually deal with and use as as you see fit in various different ways um how have you found including that you know, momentum while making it relatable to the player and not making it too abstract like a number rather than actually making it a number which is represented as such and actually making it so that actually you know this is directly intertwined with your actions as a player. Yeah, I think I think players sort of inherently understand kind of action points and and that kind of economy in games of this type. And it's sometimes it's as simple as like you say, naming naming the thing momentum makes you makes you feel like it it is action based that it's that is a a thing that you need to at times conserve and at times kind of use and we we iterated quite a lot on um how that worked and in in the early days the attacks would give you more momentum so it would encourage you to m- make multiple attacks in a row but that ended up being very um sort of overpowered as a technique um and it comes back to the thing about movement and that for a while we had all movements were incredibly cheap at one stage but that would create a situation where you'd do a few attacks and then you would step out of the way and there would be no challenge to it so one thing that we did was we we introduced a s- sort of secondary currency uh which is the combo system where um, when you do the majority of attacks give you additional combo once you've made them and then movement reduces your combo so you you would be discouraged and it would be bad tactics to move too much unnecessarily and if you could stand and block then you would maintain your combo which would mean you do more damage in subsequent rounds and so that really helped to to bring those things together and at the same time made momentum more valuable because you could kind of conserve it for bigger attacks and um it it, it gave everything a level of importance that it didn't have before yes it's something to 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 drive for to actually okay well i can do that thing but if i expose myself just a little bit to a bit of risk or potential damage i am still going to actually gain momentum of something and it's 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 really sort of adds that risk reward mechanic uh, 
which you know something is difficult to do sometimes in games but uh i think it really does a good job of you sort of leaning towards a certain tactic in a certain situation to deliver, yeah, and it, it, you know it also encourages thinking ahead to an extra degree as well if you yeah. if you know that there are, are, are multiple consequences to each action then you have to think more about what you're going to do later this turn or next turn as a consequence of what you're doing now. Um, and that's true in the movement, and that's also true in both the momentum and the combo systems. Yeah. Next, I want to talk about the design of the cards. So the design in, of cards in fighting type spaces does rely a lot on iconography to determine the kind of type of card, how much they cost in terms of actions. Uh, what they do, what what they combination, what they earn you, if you use it, if anything. How have you found designing these? I ask this because there's a very famous tabletop game called Race for the Galaxy, which is riddled with icons to the point where there's not much in the way of actual card, it's just lots of icons that you need to know <laughs> how they interact with each other. Yeah. How, how have you found designing them to make sure that they are suitably informative? Uh, that that's one of, that's a, a really tricky thing is um, is getting that level of clarity right um, without without overwhelming the player, but also giving them sufficient knowledge of what's going on. And I think sometimes there there are edge cases with some of our cards where we kind of haven't been able to do that, so we kind of fall back to having a bunch of text description and in a way that so so my first experience of of kind of sort of high level kind of card battle games was was playing magic as a teenager and that sort of taught me that the the value of being able to go actually we can't convey this with just three or four numbers we need a a long description and then suddenly you can do special stuff. You can do stuff that numbers have no way of, of, of getting across. You can say, oh, we'll just swap a card with another player. And that's, there's, there's nothing uh, ideogrammic you could do for that. You just write it down and then you've got a new and interesting way of playing a card against someone else. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's... What I love about the the, the issue or the, the use of these icons is that it's a nice shorthand as you play it more and more. You're looking for certain icons rather than actually, oh, I need that one. That no one works with that, and that's. Sort of, I mean, was that the intention that it's a bit of a shorthand for the player? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as as if we can, if we can get across the the entirety of a card in a in three or four icons, then that's brilliant because that means uh, it can maintain the sort of uh, the speed of the game and the, the pace at which a player can play it and they know what they're doing so they can quickly whip through kind of the basics. Um, yeah, like the... And, the, and the, the whole thing about the, the board is that we're dealing with a whole bunch of other challenges at the same time in showing what what the enemies are going to do next and what what 
characters are working at different ranges and who's attacking where we want to give the player kind of full information at all times so as well as the stuff on the cards the stuff on the board and there's stuff kind of around the interface but also one of the things we want to do is keep it really clean and clear and sort of um we don't want it to be too frightening for new players because part of the thing that i want to do with this title is bring people who wouldn't necessarily play a deck building game into that genre who wouldn't necessarily play a, a tactical game into that genre because because of the theme is hopefully quite appealing to a, a, a different set of people to who would normally pick it up so i didn't want a screen that was so totally full of icons and charts and graphs and things that it was too intimidating but equally, we know that there's going to be plenty of, of hardcore players of these types of games who are going to want to know exactly what's going on at all times. So finding that balance is, uh, has been really interesting. Yeah, I mean, look at Slade Aspire. <laughs> yep. That's exactly what happened with that. People have vast spreadsheets to figure out how it's all working. Purpose, really. But anyway, it's not how I play Slade Aspire, by the way. But, um... Well, no, so, so Slade's really interesting because like, that game really kind of pulled me in and I, right. I absolutely love it and it's the template for a bunch of stuff that we do um yeah it's it's a huge huge inspiration on 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 fights but like since since working on this i've discovered as you have that people play slay the spire in a completely different way when they're very good to say it from than from someone who's just picked it up like i i will I will take card rewards willy-nilly. I will build a massive deck. I'll have fun with it. I'll play cards. Whereas the core players of that game are as minimalist as they can possibly be. They will build a deck around a handful of cards and get as high to kind of, like you say, almost spreadsheet it so they can cut through everything as fast as possible. It's a numbers game to them. Um, whereas I'd always, I've always been a bit, more casual with it um and yeah so it's it's really interesting to see the the spectrum of of ways that people approach that game and and our game to some extent yeah i mean what's the thing about deck builders is that most people think so that's what's wrong a lot of people think and indeed the game seems to advertise it this way in that oh you're building your deck surely buying a card is a good thing right is it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you... I mean, we, we've 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 had a, a bunch of complaints saying, "Oh, you, your your deck starts too big." There's there some some of the random events say that they're good, but they give you a card. And to me, gaining a card is a reward. But to to deck building players, gaining a random card is one of the worst things that can possibly happen because it kind of ruins the balance of your finely crafted um, deck. Yeah not realising that they're going to need to add that card to their deck, otherwise they're going to get punched in the face, both figuratively and actually. <laughs> um, because that's what happens. It's just, you know, you have to morph, you have to evolve and you have to grow. And the way, way that um, Fights in Tight Spaces does that is by giving you more powerful cards. The better you do, the more you progress. That's the point. <clears throat> Last question then. And I want to ask you about the utilitarian nature of the visual design of uh, fights in tight spaces. 
Now, in other words, what I'm trying to say to everyone is, is that it's, it's, it screams at me as extremely functional, extremely functional, because you know where you are and the actual, in relation to the other beings, the other things or objects in the room, as you said earlier at the beginning of this second half of the show. But it also, you know, it's just the background is just barely, you can barely see it. It's sort of this faded white, sort of off-white colouring that uh, there are objects in the room or there's things in the room, but that's not really important. But what's important is you and the other beings in the room you're engaging with in one way or the other. Um, what led to tights in, so the, the, the fights in tight spaces? What led to it making it look like this, to reflect the concept of creating a model for close quarters combat? Um, yeah, I think uh, some would say functional, some would say stylish. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, um, yeah, I, uh, some of it is is very pragmatic. The mm. the necessity to, to emphasise the action over the environment, especially when we're conveying lots of other information at the same time. Uh, it has, it's sort of the visual design has influences in a bunch of places. Um, lots of kind of old Saul Bassey kind of title sequences for kind of 70s spy movies and things like that. The, uh, lots of people point out the, the, the Casino Royale opening titles. There's a very, uh, kind of, fits the element to them vice versa um yeah so I, as as we when when i started pitching the game to paul it had it had sort of realistic characters in it um we in our pre-production videos they were they were characters from another game that we'd made but were were basically realistic so it didn't and when we looked at that when we looked at that from a from a isometric perspective from the third person camera however you want to call it it didn't quite gel it didn't it didn't tell you enough about what was going on in the world and it didn't look good enough to kind of justify it whereas the more stylish we made it the more stylized we made it um the the easier it was to read but also the kind of cooler it became it's really striking when when we make gifts of it you can scroll down the twitter timeline you see them immediately like it's it stands out amongst other things and what you what you want as a as a game developer to to sell a new game to people is for it to stand out so it kind of fulfilled a whole bunch of things both kind of thematically and uh it helps with gameplay it helped with production because it meant we weren't spending months painting textures for everything um and yeah it helps with marketing because people see the game and know exactly what it is kind of first time out so yeah it's uh it it was a it was an interesting process because again it it took a while as we were developing what the game would be we were also developing what the game would look like and we we tried out a, a bunch of different styles but this this very stark sort of monochrome look became like a clear front runner and then we we refined that over time and we did, there's there's quite a lot of subtle things that we d- 
do that uh, people wouldn't necessarily notice. Like we, we, when two characters are nominally the same color, we tint them ever so slightly so they stand out against each other. So you'll have eight seemingly identical prison guys, but you can always make them out against one another because they've been tinted a little bit. So we do things like that to to improve the readability out that that are that people would not notice that we were doing. But it just it just kind of yeah, little fun little challenges like that as we develop the game. The 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 visuals were were developed kind of in parallel. For me it feels like you're playing it as a in a in a lab. You know, it's like, yeah, this this is a simulation of what could potentially happen. Let's see where this pans out, and let's put this, create this scenario and uh, run it. Uh, yeah, so, so, yeah, so the the kind of thinking behind the 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 overworld meta is that it is exactly that that you're on a you're on a, a fancy high tech table scrolling between various encounters. So yeah, it's it's yeah a, a sort of light kind of I suppose tech angle. We don't like we don't make a big deal of it, but that's kind no. of in, in my head canon what's going on. It feels like you know someone's created a combat simulator for a military organization, and they're just playing through these different scenarios and what they could do, and just looking at it as such a cold and clinical experience of like you know, well, if they move there, they'll, they'll engage with that. They have the ability to move that. And uh, you know, it's just it's just very clever. It's really nicely done because it does sort of play into the concept. Like you can make a a meta game out of it. Like, are you really an agent? Are these people really existing, or is it just a simulation? <laughs> are we, you know, a brain in a vat <laughs> kind of thing? Which then delves into hard solipsism, which we don't want to go into in this show or ever. Any- <laughs> there was a there was a trend. Uh- a, a while ago, I don't, I don't know when it would have been, but mm. um, for VR missions, which I think Metal Gear did a bit, and it did. other games copied afterwards, which was where they got away with, they added a whole bunch more content, but without having to create a whole load more level art. And I think that's a really, that's quite a nice thing because it distills down kind of gameplay experiences into sort of a, this modular puzzle type thing that you can then, you can from a game design perspective, it's really nice because you can create a bunch of different levels using the well-established mechanics, but you don't have to worry about whether you've got the resources to fit them in with the main flow of the game. You can just uh, you can add your VR missions and put in as much kind of fun, new, interesting challenges for yourself and for the player. Yes, and of course, the more cynical may of some of you may say, "Isn't this just like it was all a dream?" kind of trope <laughs> it's like i guess i guess it is um yeah i think Gear solid 2 did do that didn't it mm. <laughs> anyway um fights in tight spaces yeah got it right then Get tongue twister deliberately so fights in tight spaces which is developed by ground shatter great name where's it come from uh ground shatter mm. um I I was looking for a, the name of a company. I, I wanted to sort of convey that thing where a character falls down 
in a movie and the ground shatters below them rather than their arms and legs will get broken. Is that Neo landing in a three-point stance or Captain America crashing to the ground? Um, Or indeed Loki being smashed up by Hulk. Yeah, probably more heroic (laughs) than that. (laughs) Yeah, he was a puny god after all, but yes. The, um, yeah, the kind of point being that you are, that the ground is yielding rather than your human limbs. Indeed, yeah. There's a wonderful scene in the Matrix, you're right, the early sort of fight scene of Aiden Smith in the underground. That's really, very yeah, you're like, hang on, that that would shatter someone. Like, yeah, but they're not real. <laughs> None of this is real. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, yes, and it's published by Mode 7 Games. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And uh, it's available on what platforms, sir? You can buy it on Steam and GOG and Epic Game Store, and you can also buy it on Xbox via the Xbox Store. Nice. And what does it run on? It runs on everything. It's The PC specs are pretty low. Uh, right. It runs on the whole generations of Xbox, but it is okay. enhanced for Series S and X. Nice. It's, it's, it's not on Mac or anything like that, though. I'm afraid not. No, no. These are the questions I have to answer or ask because I do get that. And historically, regular listeners know I listed out the platforms that games are on and then it turned out I made it faux pas because I announced one before it had been formally announced. <laughs> very, very bad. So I, ever since then, I've stopped doing it and I've just asked the developers to rattle it off. So, you know, if they say something, it's nonsense on them. Um, but uh, James, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been a really, really good show. Really entertaining. The massive crossover between my different uh, game types of tabletop and, and uh, video games. So well done for, for creating what is an excellent game, which is fights in tight spaces, everyone. And uh, you're more than welcome to come back on. Paul's been on several times to talk about <laughs> your next title, whatever that may be. But we will be here. Trust me, we'll be here. Until then. Well, I I would love that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Until then, thank you very much. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, caneandrinse.com. 